Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, not looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity, the formation of the Bible, the biblical canon, the the early church, how Christians worshipped up through the ages of the Reformation, and beyond. And it was then, as I began reading from actual Catholic sources about what the Catholic Church actually believed, that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed was based in large part on misinformation, and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, well, this week is just fantastic. I'm joined by Dr. Scott Hahn to talk about the Eucharist, a convert's guide to the Eucharist. What do Catholics believe happens in communion? Is it merely symbolic, as I understood as an evangelical? Was it meant to be symbolic? Or is it so much more? Is it the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New, in this Passover meal which Christ fulfills and completes? Spoiler alert, (laughs) I think that's the key. It's a great conversation, a fantastic interview, and I am just so humbled and blown away to actually be able to talk to somebody like Dr. Scott Hahn, who was so influential in my own conversion. I think you'll love this episode. We go deep, way deep on the Eucharist. It's great. This conversation is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. If you want to help to support this show to keep it going and growing each and every week, you can do that at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Any contribution really helps this show to continue to happen. And thanks to those who are supporting this show each and every week. Thank you. You guys are fantastic. And now, without any further ado, here it is, my fantastic interview with Dr. Scott Hahn, a convert's guide to the Eucharist. Guys, I'm so humbled to have had this conversation. Please listen and enjoy. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching, thank you for being here, thank you for listening. Guys, fantastic episode. I am joined by Dr. Scott Hahn. He needs uh, very little introduction for those who know who, who he is, which I'm sure are most of you listening and viewing. But if you don't know, if you've been under a rock or something, I don't know where you've been, he is the Father Michael Scanlon, uh, Professor of Biblical Theology and New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, uh, an incredible apostolate that teaches scripture from the heart of the church. Of course, he's married to Kimberly Hahn for 41 years. Oh my goodness, six grandchildren, uh, six children, 20 grandchildren, and of course, two sons in formation uh, in the uh, Diocese of Steubenville, and he's the author of a number of books, I think 40, probably more since then, (laughs) including, of course, Rome Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, Hail Holy Queen, and new releases, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection. 
of the body, and it is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion. Both available from stpaulcenter.com. Fantastic resources. Dr. Han, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show, and hello. You're most you're most welcome, Keith. What a joy to be with you. I don't even know where to begin. I, I, you know, this is our first time meeting, of course, but I feel like I've known you for for a while because I'm an evangelical convert to the to the faith. A lot of listeners and viewers of this show are converts or considering conversion or looking into the Catholic Church to learn more. And I mean, we haven't met before, but I can recall very vividly I was traveling from my home up in Canada down to Ithaca for a conference, and I had a bunch of your books on tape or on CD, I guess, at that point. And I was listening to one of your one of your talks, one of your books, and it's all the section of the book is about guardian angels. And as an evangelical, I hadn't really ever heard of guardian angels, and I was so enraptured in listening to you talk about this that I got completely lost somewhere in the Finger Lakes area. <laughs> and this was before really GPS was widespread. I had a phone; it wasn't a smartphone, I don't think, at the time. And I was hopelessly lost, just listening to your voice, driving around, trying to figure out, looking at my MapQuest printouts where I needed to be. So, uh, so we've been lost together in the Finger Lakes, despite <laughs> never having met before. <laughs> so. I'm sure there's an allegory there someplace. I'm, sh- I'm sure there is. Whenever I hear your voice, Dr. Hahn, I, I, I think back to the beautiful landscape of the Finger Lakes, driving around, hopelessly lost, looking at these farms and turning around, and it was great. Were you still an evangelical at that point? I was, I was, and and I got to say that I mean, the the things that are blowing my mind listening to the, those tapes, that's why I was so distracted because I was like, what, guardian angels? I have a guardian angel who's who can pray for me, and I can, and, and, and you know, I'm also, and, and then... I got lost. <laughs> well, therein lies the allegory because your guardian angel got you unlost. That's true. <laughs> and brought Absolutely. you home. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. I want to talk to, with you today about uh, the Eucharist. And I'm going to call this episode The Convert's Guide to the Eucharist. Because, as I mentioned, a lot of listeners on, my, on this show are considering conversion, are new converts, are non-Catholics looking into the church. And you were there, famously. I, I have been there. And I want to begin by asking you, as as a non-Catholic, I know you were a pastor for a while, you, you were in um, seminary, you were studying the Bible and scripture and theology. When you think back to before being a Catholic, what was your view, I mean, if anything, uh, of the Eucharist? I mean, we called it communion, did it once a month, if that. It was a symbol. I mean, that was all it was for us. Looking back, where did you begin to understand what that was before you were Catholic. Where did you begin? Yeah. So as a teenager, newly converted at the age of 14 and delivered from the Allegheny County Juvenile Court System in Pittsburgh, uh, it didn't even show up in my radar. Uh, It was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that mattered. And then, of course, state sacred scripture and reading through the Bible and then doing it again uh, in high school was for me the great sustained eureka moment. At the same time, I became aware of it because I was now attending a Presbyterian church as a Reformed evangelical, uh, and we did it about four times a year, communion, and we called it the Lord's Supper, and we never even discussed what it was or what it wasn't. All I knew is that the Catholics were wrong, and I thought that the Lutherans were pretty too close to the Catholics, but I didn't go there. There was no need. It was in college that I began to go deeper, and I began to realize, okay, what is the center of Scripture? It's the notion of the covenant relationship between God and His people that establishes communion. 
And you can tell that the moment when the new covenant is being established is in the upper room. And so this mystery of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Eucharist, I still didn't really know or use that word, was emerging as something that was obviously important and worth more consideration. Uh, And then in seminary, I'll be honest, it was tamped back because at Gordon-Conwell, the evangelical professors were a wide spectrum. And so I took a course from J. Ramsey Michaels in the Gospel of John, and when we got to the Bread of Life discourse, I mean, he's brilliant. I I still recommend his commentary. Uh, But he got his Harvard doctorate and his Baptist background, and so it was just, you know, like putting your hand over a map and trying to figure out, okay, what is the actual topography? You know, it was all flat. Uh, And so to think of the Eucharist as important as a towering summit in the early church was quite plainly unthinkable. And then my last semester, I began to dive more deeply into the early church fathers because I got more interested in the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. And I, I won't bore you with all of the details, but I would say that reading the early church fathers and discovering typology and having that confirmed as sort of the path forward to understanding that you need to read the new in light of the old and the old is fulfilled in the new because the new is almost unintelligible apart from the old. And the old is like a story in search of an ending because the people of God are still in exile and all of the promises of the old covenant still remain empirically unfulfilled. And so I began to preach in my church in Fairfax, Virginia, all about scripture and the relationship between the old and the new and using the early church fathers. And that's when it became obvious to me that for them, The New Covenant wasn't primarily a document, it was the sacrament, it was the Eucharist, it was the only thing Jesus ever called the New Testament. When he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament, he doesn't say, now proceed to write this in remembrance of me, and I'd like it to get in around 27 books, you know. And so that discovery was uh, painful and exciting, because it put me on a path that I didn't expect to be on, and in search of a church that would fit the bill that I was finding in the early church fathers. And it was obvious that people like de Lubac and Daniel Lu and Congar and Garigou Lagrange, and especially this, this one figure named Ratzinger, you know, they were all like guides, Sherpas on my path. And uh, I, I became aware of the fact that the Catholic church didn't get it entirely wrong. Uh, and so, I I didn't really know exactly what to do with that, but after less than two years of ministry, I knew what honesty and integrity demanded, and that was my resignation. Because to go in search of a church while you're leading a parish, while you're playing church, in effect, uh, was just, it it, it was too hmm, dishonest. And so a few years later, I end up in Milwaukee, studying for a PhD at Marquette, taking a seminar on the early church fathers and worship and becoming more and more curious. And I write about this in, well, a little bit in Rome's Sweet Home, a lot about it in The Lamb's Supper, because the opening of that book describes my first mass in a basement chapel. Uh, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday during lunchtime. And I just went down as an observer, just to jot a few reflections based upon what I'd see. If there were, if there was any residue that remained in the mass from the early church worship that Justin Martyr described, for example. 
uh, and I was just transfixed. Uh, I was, hmm, I was stunned. Uh, an hour after the mass was over, I was still sitting there in the back pew, trying to figure out where do I go <laughs> to a basement chapel or to the New Jerusalem and the heavenly liturgy, where the angels and the saints and the martyrs are surrounding the throne of the Lamb. Amen, glory, hallelujah, but especially the Lamb of God. And so after attending Mass daily for two weeks, I looked back on my own journey and realized that I found something I wasn't looking for. Uh, I was found by someone that I didn't expect. I mean, I, it was the Lord Jesus, but not just in sacred scripture, but in the Holy Eucharist. And and so I was still thinking I was five five years out from becoming a Catholic to make to make the the journey look intellectually respectable. Well, it turned out, I think it was a little bit less than five months later, I was receiving the church. And next to finding my own bride, Kimberly, 41 years ago, finding Christ's bride 35 years ago was, I mean, they're both tied for first. You know, uh, It was the single greatest and single most unexpected discovery of all time. You know, and I think now back 35 years later, talking to Catholics and realizing, okay, most of the ones I run into are cradle Catholics. And as Catholics, whether we're cradle Catholics or converts, we're so accustomed to real presence, whether we believe in it or not. We're familiar with transubstantiation, with ordination. In fact, our son Jeremiah is scheduled to be ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Steubenville in, well, two months from now. And so, uh, we're kind of excited, but at the same time, we're kind of familiar with the words of consecration, with transubstantiation, with the real presence, with the notion of sacrifice, with, okay, why will the bishop's gestures and hands and words do something for him that his dad couldn't do, you know, apostolic succession. I, I think there is no way that all of this can be true, transubstantiation, real presence, consecration. And yet it is true. It's the truth of the gospel. And I mean, the plain and simple fact is this, that the Eucharist is far more unbelievable than we realize that um, it's amazing how unamazed we are by all of the things that we profess, but most especially the Mount Everest of all Catholic practices. And that is the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. I look back and I, I, I want to I want to pull out my inner Calvinist and just offer comfort and consolation and say, I, I, I understand you know what you went through, the shock, the trauma, uh, because I I still see it through your eyes, you know, um, and I I still feel as though I'm a convert, and I think as the years go by, I'm amazed at how unamazed I am, and I'm also amazed at how. Uh, much I need to convert. You know, after 35 years, you'd think that holiness would just be a few feet away, you know, and I think it's about a zillion light years away. Uh, I can't imagine what I would be without this, but I also wonder why I'm not more holy with this sacrament, the Blessed One, and all of the others too. But it's too good. It's too real. It's too true. It's too beautiful to give into discouragement, you know, and to say, okay, Lord, um, if you are still willing to forgive and feed me, I am still willing to renew this covenant. Just say the word and your sinful servant shall be healed. And so looking back on 35 years as I approached this anniversary uh, at Easter Vigil, 
Uh, we're going to be up in Detroit celebrating uh, our niece being received into the Catholic Church, which is for us a big event precisely because it's the first family member on both sides of her family that is going to come into the church. And, you know, a prophet is without honor, you know, only in his own. Well, I'm not a prophet, you know. But the, the, the fact is there is a great cause of rejoicing. She is marrying a wonderful Catholic guy. I'm not going to say their names because in the last few weeks I have said names of converts on podcasts and got them in hot water. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not going to go there. I'm learning my lesson. But the joy is almost irrepressible. Uh, and, and I know of at least eight or ten people uh, who are coming into the church that I'm in frequent contact with. And it just doesn't get old. It, it feels like yesterday. Yeah. And you know that sense, Keith, because I can see it in your eyes that, uh, you know, this is the pearl of great price, and I am the least likely to have found it because it was the last thing I was looking <laughs> yeah. for. So not to us, so Lord, not to us, yeah. but to your name be glory. Yeah, I can remember very vividly. So I was, uh, I was evangelical, exploring the Catholic faith, and back in the early days of YouTube, I found uh, Father John Ricardo, our Lady Good Council Parish up there in Michigan, of course. Uh, Michigan is playing a large role in both of our stories today. I don't know why. They had, they had filmed, they had videotaped on like a handicam two years worth of their RCIA classes. And so I found those on YouTube. And I used to, before we had kids, I used to binge watch those on YouTube till like two or three in the morning, just hour after hour of the RCA courses. Better than Jack Bauer at 24. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, I, I was just enthralled. And we got to the, the Eucharist and I was just, I mean, I couldn't believe it. And, and first of all, I couldn't believe that none of the Catholics that I knew in my life, I didn't know a lot of Catholics, but those that I knew hadn't told me before what the Eucharist right. actually was. And I, I was scandalized to first of all, to, to realize that. And then to realize that what I understood it to be as an evangelical, I mean, I can remember being in a church service as an evangelical in a non-denominational church where we did communion and the pastor would stand up there and he would read the text of Corinthians, but he would add in, you know, this is like my body or this, you know, you're actually taking the words of scripture that are written there on the page and changing it because oh, to fit wow. the theology, because we believed as evangelicals, right, that it, that it was just symbolic. And so we have to make this make sense symbolically. And if, if Paul writes, this is my body, to quote Christ's words, well, he didn't mean it is, he meant it is like, and so we'll just, we'll just kind of change that as, as we read that. But I, I had just no, no concept at all that anyone ever believed it was anything other than a symbol, you know, and I'd, I'd taken some church history courses. I wasn't, I wasn't totally naive to the, the history of Christianity. But I don't think, in large measure, evangelicals reject what the Catholics view the Eucharist as being. I think, you know, in my case, we just don't know. We don't realize that anybody right. else believes it to be anything but a symbol. We've inherited this Protestant theology just in the air we breathe. And you discover, like I did, that other people actually believe something different than you do, that this actually is the real presence, that, that's hard. Like you said, that's hard to not want to run into the church right away and join and receive. That's hard to just deny, yeah. right? You know, your words evoke two, two deep thoughts. At least they seem deep to me. You know, on the one hand, uh, in becoming a Catholic, you, you not only discover but you also embrace the idea that the mystery of faith is greatly 
it greatly exceeds the theological system that you were working on. You know, and, and for me, theology was always big and central. I mean, from the age of 14 and a half on, when I was reading Steele and Thomas's Five Points of Calvinism, Defined and Defended, and Luther's Bondage of the Will, and Calvin's Institutes, and all of that, finding the most rigorously coherent, logical system of theology, Burkhoff, Hodge, and all of that, it was so exciting. And it still is, but in the Protestant world, faith is basically put into theology, almost into a, a box. And I had the biggest box on the block. I'm, I was convinced that I still am now. But in becoming a Catholic, you recognize that the faith exceeds theology. Whether you're following the system of Aquinas or Bonaventure, you're a Suarezian, you're a Molinist, a Bonesian, whatever system of theology you embrace in the Catholic Church, it's sort of like the 12 tribes of Israel. They're, they're, they're distinct in terms of their theological systems, but they're united by the solidarity with the founding father, Jacob Israel, and also the God of Israel. And so to, uh, to recognize that, you know, if, if your faith is going to be defined by the, the system of theology, then you have a decision to make when you become a spiritual adult. Am I going to be a Lutheran and follow Luther? Am I going to be Reformed and follow Calvin? Am I going to be Methodist and follow Wesley? And there are lots of other options, literally thousands now. Or in the Catholic Church, you basically prostrate your intellect before the tabernacle and say, Lord, no system could ever contain the infinitude of beauty, truth, power, coherence, you know, uh, and so, in a sense, you, you prostrate your mind before the mystery. And when you arise, it isn't the case that your intellect was just simply crucified. It's more like your intellect is resurrected. And suddenly you are capable of reasoning about the sacred mysteries in a way that you could never think by reason alone. And so your reason is elevated above and beyond the merely rational power to systematize the thought. But at the same time, you, you subordinate the, the theologizing to the mystery that all people share. Even the newly baptized baby possesses the plentitude of faith because the sacred deposit is not what you've thought through. It's what you received as pure gift as a child. And so this is actually a beckoning to think about it, not less, but more precisely because your mind is liberated. No longer is this all about your intellectual journey and your denominational decision. Now it's about the awe and wonder. There's still that factor of, you know, I find Banez explaining Aquinas better than the Jesuit Molina explaining Aquinas, you know. So I still have my camp, as it were, and I still love Congarin de Lubac, the prefer Garigou Lagrange and all of the rest. But the idea of that discovery is what reminds us that being a convert is like the job description of every single Catholic, and not just including those who were born into it, but there's a sense in which it's especially for them, you know, because as we're going through the cultural chaos, you're up in Canada, we're down in the U.S., but, you know, you're, you're beginning to recognize, wow, We've taken a lot of things for granted that are now on the chopping block, if not the guillotine, you know, and there's a kind of cultural revolution that is questioning basic moral values. And so at the natural level, you have to rethink traditional morality and figure out, is it hate speech or not? 
You know, is it really for a man and a woman to unite and have that love bear fruit in a new person out of nothing but love? You know, that isn't hate speech. But then at the supernatural level, you know, as the Catholic Church finds itself more and more in a pressure cooker up there and down here, it's really a beckoning to something that we've probably been called to but haven't always responded to promptly or fully and freely. And that is the call to conversion isn't just what happened to me, you know, some 50 years ago when I was 13 hearing Christ calling me out of the juvenile court system. Uh, it wasn't what happened 35 years ago. It's what happened about two hours and 50 minutes ago when I woke up, you know, and I realized I have a decision to make. Am I going to do this day on my own or am I going to submit not only to the Lordship of Christ, but to whatever crosses he bestows upon me? That makes life exciting, but it also makes the ordinary, the mundane, and the humdrum fraught with the extraordinary, precisely because so much of what is invisibly present in the ordinary little things of the day are, as Mother Teresa has continually reminded us on earth and now in heaven, that loving in the little things with a lot of love is what makes us holy. You know, the, the sacraments don't make it easy or automatic you know, it isn't like the Eucharist just mechanically transforms bread into you know, bread and wine into Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, and sinners into saints. No, the, the sacraments are what make it possible. <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm discovering 35 years later, just barely, you know, uh, humanly impossible, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. <laughs> well, you make a, a couple of uh, points I want to touch on there that are fantastic. The, and the first is this idea of as Protestants, what we would, would do is we'd read different theologians and decide which one we thought interpreted Scripture the best, right? That's how we used right. to do it. I can One of the catalysts for me looking into the Catholic Church more seriously, it was a quite a long journey, but one of the catalysts was our non-denominational church sorting out what we thought about marriage and gender. Uh, and this was years ago, before wow. it became a widespread issue, we were thinking about it. And I was reading different books by different pastors and different theologians in the Protestant camps. And they're all looking at the same handful of scripture verses, interpreting them all kinds of different ways. And I thought, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And that was kind of, for me, the first big real-world practical demonstration of, of, of the Protestant way a, 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 of doing things, of the sola scriptura idea of looking at the scriptures and trying to figure out, even in community, even, right. even within this church community, you're still you still end up kind of picking and choosing a certain theologian or theologians that you like a camp you like and saying yeah they've got the market cornered on the bible on this right. section versus the catholic church where you kind of i mean i've had tons of conversations on this show explaining how you've put it uh, you i think have the most eloquent way of putting it <laughs> But it's a thing that a lot of us try and describe, right? This is the fact that we can kind of lean into this tradition and we don't have to pick a camp anymore. There are theologians in in the church right. doing things, but they're and all working in the framework, yeah. right? They're working in the framework right. of of the church versus trying to pick a camp and then sticking with that camp as a Protestant to figure out who has the best biblical interpretation, right? And on the Eucharist, it was nowhere in the Protestant, in the evangelical world, this idea. Now, I think more and more churches are coming back towards more traditional kind of views. I mean, friends that I have that are still in these kind of churches, they're becoming more liturgical and trying to pick these pieces of the ancient church back out. And so there is this kind of rediscovery of, wait a minute, I mean, Francis Chan's one of those guys who's kind of rediscovered the, the Eucharist, the ancient teaching of the church. But it's it's nowhere out there in these different camps in the evangelical world, the idea of the Eucharist, yet you come to the church and it's the central thing 
we can, as you say, we can unpack that, how it's done differently, you know, how Aquinas talks about it and how people interpret Aquinas talking about it. But we're within the framework of the Catholic Church versus these different right. camps we choose uh, and, and figure out who we think has the best biblical interpretation, right? Because then it, it right. lands us back on, on our shoulders because we're picking most biblical theologian or, or church, right? It's a, there's a, a big difference there, I think. So that was the one thought I had from what you said. Yeah. What I'd like to add here, um, that was really good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're 200% right about, you know, whether it's the Eucharist or sexuality, marriage and the family, you know, there's a handful of texts and you go to the experts and you read the diverse opinions and all of that. But then you find something that gives rest to the soul, the intellect, as well as the heart. And at the same time, it stimulates you to dive deeper, dive deeper into it, you know, Uh, but to have that sense of safety and peace and freedom that comes from knowing you're not out in a storm-tossed sea, but you're on the beach and your parents are watching, you know, uh, Mother Church and uh, uh, the Holy Father, but above all, God, Abba Father. On the one hand, I, I would say this, that when I've discovered that God's fatherhood is the source of everything, you know, the eternal sonship of Jesus, the spirit of sonship poured out upon us, um, as a father, in a much lower way, by analogy, I, I have six kids, and they're so different from one another. And that diversity at times seems to threaten our unity, our solidarity, especially on long drives, you know, <laughs> I look back over the years. But at the same time, now that we have those six kids, and three of them have given us 20 grandkids, and men are those grandkids different too. And then the next two are studying to become supernatural Eucharistic fathers in the priesthood, and our youngest is just getting ready to graduate from the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where I've been for 31 years, where all of his older siblings have graduated too. Um, You begin to recognize that some diversity threatens unity. Other diversity deepens it and strengthens it. When there is love, uh, you end up realizing that, okay, the battles that were fought, the battles royale that were fought at dinner, you know, when they were all preteens or after teens, you know, they went when they were after when they became teenagers. Um, there really is a sense in which the diversity of theological traditions in the Catholic Church uh, leaves you with twelve tribes, but with one nation, one people, and 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 so as a professional theologian, I find it absolutely liberating to talk to the Jesuits, the Augustinians, the Franciscans, to find certain emphases among Bonaventurians or even Scotists that I wouldn't find among my favorite Dominicans, you know. Uh, on the other hand, I would trace this all the way back in my own experience to something that happened in seminary, but I would trace it back in the church's experience all the way to the first century. Because, you know, even though I embraced Hodge, the three volumes, Systematic Theology as a Good Presbyterian, and read and reread that in Burkhoff, I, I remember being upset by this discussion that we were having that um, Paul is not just a, um, a coal mine that miners go into to pull out the coal that will end up as steel or whatever else, that Paul himself was a theologian and that he was the first and he was inspired and as an apostle who wrote so many of these books and then mentored Luke who wrote the two longest Luke and Acts, so that combined their friendship produced well over half of the entire collection of 27 books. What do you mean Paul's a theologian? 
Well, there's a coherence. He's not a systematic theologian, but I was introduced to the idea of biblical theology, that we're not just mining these texts for proof texts, that we're trying to kind of not only gain the mind of Christ, but to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, as he encourages the Corinthians. And so the initial challenge was reading Richard Gaffin's doctoral dissertation on the centrality of the the resurrection in Paul's soteriology, his doctrine of salvation, where for us, you know, in Burkhoff or Hodge or the systematic theology texts, the resurrection is apologetic proof of Jesus' divinity, of his innocence, that, you know, he, his body is back and all of that. But to think like in Paul's terms in Romans 3, that he was crucified for our sins, for the remission of our sins, but he was raised for our justification. What, what role does resurrection play? And I began to realize that Paul emphasizes the importance of the resurrection in our salvation far more than all of my favorite theologians and their texts in our tradition. And I looked at other traditions, and they were practically all the same, the Methodists, the Lutherans, and all. And so I I went into the shelves, and I found, of all things, a Catholic, Francois Xavier Durwell, The Resurrection, a biblical study, in the late 40s doing biblical theology before any of us, but showing how the biblical writers are profoundly coherent theologians, and that if you take it back into their language, you begin to discover the limitations of your own system, and yet at the same time, the unlimited authority, but also the unlimited penetration into the sacred mysteries. Another one, a Jesuit from up in Canada, where you are, David Michael Stanley wrote a book on the role of the resurrection in Paul's soteriology. And, you know, the Protestant was doing a good job, Dr. Gaffin, but he was basically riffing of, you know, he wasn't ripping off, but he was riffing off of these other sources that he acknowledged. But since they were written by Catholics, you couldn't explicitly show any dependence upon them, even if they did a better job. And they did. And at that point, I'm in trouble because how can Catholics not only make better sense out of Paul, my hero, but how can they show me things about Paul that I only associated with Augustine, you know, or Aquinas, but most especially with Luther and Calvin and our heroes. But to discover biblical theology, and not just that Paul is, but that John is, and that the diversity goes back to the first century, and yet the diversity that doesn't threaten unity, but actually deepens it, enriches it, that you have the theology of John's, gospel, of his epistles, of his apocalypse. You have First and Second Peter, that Christ was the conductor of a first century symphony where he had all of these inspired virtuosos playing together. The woodwinds don't sound like the strings or the brass or the percussion, but it's like the Catholic faith enables you to listen to the, the truth of the New Testament, fulfilling the old. One of the Cappadocians used the Greek word symphonia. And so, you know, drawing from Ratzinger's dependence on Basil, I think. But, uh, I mean, it's like the symphony of truth. And the more you train yourself to distinguish, that's Johannine, that's Pauline, that's Lucan. You're like, no human conductor could have ever written this score or led these virtuosos in something that is so inexhaustibly beautiful. You know, and so, in a certain sense, uh, it's, it's not impenetrable, but you you never get to the bottom of it. You just keep going deeper and deeper or further up and further in as we're more familiar with that uh, language, perhaps. 
lives. Yeah, and and typology is the key, I think, maybe in in your journey looking at the Eucharist to understand what it is. Yeah, I mean, true. we as evangelicals would have understood the idea of prophecy and these things that Christ fulfills from the New Testament, and but there there was a real disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially when it came to, right. to to communion, right? We saw this as a symbol to memorialize what Christ did in the cross. But as you unpack in so many of your writings and in your, your life's work up to now, I mean, is so filled with this covenant theology, the Eucharist is actually so much more and was even in the early church understood right away as so much more than just a symbol, yeah. but this typological kind of fulfillment of of the old covenant, right? Can you unpack that a bit more? Like, what is the Eucharist oh. in terms of the? I mean, this could go on for hours and hours. We don't have that time. But say, in the, yeah, you have like three or four <laughs> hours. I would love to. In the big yeah, picture, I, would, I mean, more than a symbol, and persuasively so, right? I mean, we don't have to persuade our, ourselves, but many Catholics don't even understand. I don't think the roots of it, but it is so much more, it's so deep, right? There's so much depth there from the Old Testament in the fulfillment yeah. of, the, of the Eucharist, right? Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, you, you're inciting all kinds of things, you know, and uh, I feel like in the intersection of my mouth, my mind has <laughs> produced a kind of uh, traffic jam of all these trucks that want to get through, you know? So let me try to figure out exactly what goes first. You know, um, we all, all are familiar, I suspect, with the statistic that 30% of Catholics in the, in the Pew Research study believe in the real presence, about 70% believe in its as a, a profound and sacred symbol, whether real presence or symbolism. I mean, I would say this, that that's nothing new. When I came into the church 35 years ago, the statistics were almost identical. And I remember talking to my sponsor, you know, Chris, what's going on here? How can Catholics not believe? And he looked at me and smiled and he said, that's the wrong question, Scott. The right question is, how is it that we as Americans, just like they are, how is it that we do believe? <laughs> Seriously, we believe that wafer is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Of course we do. But if God can get through to people like us, Scott, believe me, he can get through to others and he might even use us to do that. You know, I'm like, those are my marching orders, Chris. <laughs> Thank you for that. And I, I look at the notion of typology, how much of the new was concealed in the old and how the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new, especially with the notion of covenant. Because for me, the emphasis was always just on covenant until I realized that really, if you're going to follow the scriptures, you're going to see the distinction between old covenant and new. They're not opposed. We distinguish to unite them, but we also distinguish them to show that they're inseparably one in Christ, but one is shadowy, foreshadowing the reality. And the reality that comes to us comes to us in the Eucharist, in the upper room, on Holy Thursday. The only single time that Jesus uses the word covenant, the phrase the new covenant in Luke 22, 20, is when he's taking the chalice of the Passover and speaking those solemn words of consecration, and he is saying, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, kine diatheca, could just as easily be translated New Testament, Novum Testamentum, and then it's poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What is this? We call it the Lord's Supper. They called it the Eucharist. Jesus called it the New Testament. And so to discover that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it becomes a document, 
according to the document, doesn't disqualify the document or devalue the New Testament. It just subordinates it so that you realize that as Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist shows us that the, the document needs to be read in light of the sacrament, his real presence. You know, Jerome famously said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And then Pope Benedict in Verbum Domini sort of paraphrases that by saying ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is ignorance of Scripture, because that's the thing he called the New Testament. And so to look at what he was doing on that occasion, he wasn't just celebrating the Passover one last time and then retiring it. He was fulfilling the Passover precisely by transforming it from the old to the new. But what was the Passover in the old? It wasn't just a meal. It was primarily a sacrifice of the lamb. And if Christ is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, as we hear in John 1, 29 and verse 35, then it isn't like moving from, you know, uh, the reality of animal sacrifice to a spiritual symbol of virtual sacrifice. No, the reality is so much greater And then the words of consecration end up, in a certain sense, explicating and illuminating so that when you look at what happens on Good Friday and you recognize that what we have achieved in the 21st century is absolute consensus, all Christians, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox agree that Calvary is the sacrifice, when in fact nobody back there on Calvary at at Calvary on Good Friday could have possibly, you know, leaned over and whispered to us, you know, behold the Lamb of God. Uh, They would not have used sacrificial terminology because what they would have been witnessing was a Roman execution, plain and simple, brutal and bloody, and rather tragic, to say the least. So how in the world does something that is merely a Roman execution or perhaps a martyrdom in the first century achieve a consensus in the 21st century that this is the consummation of Jesus' sacrifice. It's not just an execution. Again, to reinforce the notion, they're all Jews. They would have known what sacrifice involved, and it has to be inside the Jerusalem temple on top of an altar with a Levitical priest presiding. Jesus is crucified outside the walls, far from the temple. There are no altars nearby execution, maybe martyrdom, but not a sacrifice, unless you look at Good Friday in the light of Holy Thursday. And only when I began to realize this is what the church fathers were doing habitually, consistently, no other way of reading about the crucifixion narrative except to see that those words that he spoke and the gestures of the ritual that he initiates in the Passover context where he is now not an irrational animal getting his throat slashed and his body roasted so that we can have a communion on the sacrificial lamb. But he is laying down his life. He is offering up his body. Those words are more than rhetoric. Those gestures are more than rituals. There was a reality that was hidden from the disciples at that time in the upper room on Holy Thursday that was made manifest to the eyes of faith, at least on Good Friday, to realize, okay, he, he wasn't losing his life on Friday at Calvary if, in fact, he was laying it down and making the gift of divine love and mercy on Holy Thursday. If the Eucharist is just a meal, the Lord's Supper, then Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is the fulfillment of the Passover and the fulfillment of the Old Covenant in its entirety, it explains what Jesus said, 
what he did and why he calls this the cup of my blood, the blood of the new Testament, the blood of the new covenant. More than just proof texting Jeremiah 31, 31, the only place in the Old Testament where a new covenant is promised, or Exodus 24, verse 8, where you have that same language of the blood of the covenant, you begin to realize that these are words that are practically popping off the page and grabbing our eyes, almost pulling them out of our sockets. And it's like, there is a reality here that exceeds, you know, the thousands of lambs that were slashed and slaughtered and burned and eaten, you know, and it is, it's suspenseful. It's, it's liberating, it's exciting, it's beautiful, but you begin to realize that we need to delve into the Scriptures much more than we do. We need to connect the dots between the old and the new, between Scripture and the sacrament, between the New Testament document that we read in the liturgy of the Word, the synaxis, as they called it in antiquity, the Mass of the Catechumens, and the celebration of the Eucharist, because that is the New Testament. These are the books of the New Testament. And, and suddenly you also realize that Jesus wasn't wasting his time most of Easter Sunday. Uh, whereas I think back then a lot of people would have said, seriously, Lord, your first, ba- your, your first day back from the dead, and how do you spend it? You know, you should have dropped in on Pilate, Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, you know, all of those enemies who thought you were dead and gone, you know. Uh, but instead, you you spend hours walking mile after mile with what's his name, Clopas and his companion, opening up the scripture to show them why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer in order to enter into his glory. And they didn't recognize you at any point. You know, you should have vanished and found a more responsive audience on the way to Emmaus. But no, it was there at the table in the town of Emmaus when he does four things. He takes, he blesses, he breaks and gives And at one level, you might be tempted to say, well, it must have been a flashback then for Clopas and his companion, because why is it that suddenly they finally realize, they finally recognize the risen Savior? But they weren't numbered among the 12. This isn't a deja vu. Holy Thursday, that's what he did. No, this is simply the moment of grace. This is the occasion of revelation where Jesus chooses to unveil his identity as his risen body, blood, soul, and divinity. Again, getting back to the centrality of the resurrection in the biblical notion of our salvation. And so their eyes are open in the breaking of the bread, and suddenly he vanished from their sight, not because he was playing hard to get, but because he had patiently brought them through the scriptures to the New Testament, to the Blessed Sacrament, to the real presence, to the risen Savior. And if he had continued to remain with them, it would have been a distraction or a potential impediment because once our faith goes through the script, he wasn't wasting his time on Easter Sunday. And they weren't wasting their time when they walked all the way back to Jerusalem, rather briskly, I suspect, to bear witness to the 11 apostles about our hearts were burning as this stranger opened the scriptures, but our eyes were open to the breaking of the bread, and then who should suddenly appear there at the end of Luke 24, but the risen Savior again, and what does he do? He conducts the second Bible study of Easter Sunday, and I don't believe that he thought that he was wasting time. You know, clearly Jesus prioritizes the importance of understanding scripture, and in particular, the relationship between the old and the new. If we're going to get the next generation of Catholics up to the point where we can all pass the eye exam, you know, we've all gone through eye exams, and I always playfully say that, you know, every eye exam starts off with the same letter. You could be totally blind and still pass the first step because it's E. Well, in this case, I would say that stands for the Eucharist because 
you know, the, the, the faith vision that we are given, I mean, this makes the gift of faith more precious than any pearl or diamond. This also shows us how vulnerable this precious gift of faith is, especially in a world where, you know, science and empiricism and our five senses are the exclusive source of what we call truth, you know, but at the same time, this is the single most exciting rediscovery I can make every day that I get to do this, others do too, and even if they think they find the Bible boring, just you wait. You know, I, this wasn't meant to be a build-up or a commercial, but, you know, this is why we here at the St. Paul Center, where I'm recording in the studio, we are like kids in a candy store, you know, uh, because we've been working on this for years. It's called The Journey Through Scripture. We've done the Bible and the Blessed Virgin Mary. We've done the Bible and the sacraments, the Bible and the Church Fathers. But this year, we did the Bible and the Mass. It was the first time that I got to host the program and work with a Hollywood producer and highly technological videography and all of that. But it's been live streaming all Lent at the at, you know, on our website, stpaulcenter.com, stpaulcenter.com. And, you know, the, the reports that we've been getting back, the emails, the, the voicemails, and... You know, it, in some ways, it's not surprising, but in other ways, it's always shocking to hear a person bear witness and give testimony to their own Emmaus Eureka moment, where suddenly the dots are connected. There's a convergence. There's that grace of revelation and unveiling. Uh, in fact, the, the name of it is Perusia, the Bible and the Mass, because even though Perusia in the English dictionary means second coming, Back in the first century, Jews who spoke Greek recognized that the word parousia literally means, technically denotes presence, the, the real presence of a person, or the arrival of a king or an emperor, and how he is present and how his presence is celebrated precisely because he has brought the authority of his own kingdom to that town where you live, where you are experiencing this parousia. You know, and so... In this 10 episodes, uh, in these 10 episodes, I'm, I'm basically uh, summarizing the Lamb's Supper, uh, along with a book called Consuming the Word, the New Testament of the Eucharist in the Early Church, and also this book called The Fourth Cup. And I, I have a fourth book that's written at a higher level, um, beginner, this would be intermediate, called Letter and Spirit, From Written Text to Living Word in the Liturgy. And for the last 16 years or so, well, actually, for the last 20 years, I've had a blast teaching undergrads, high school kids, graduate students, as well as seminarians all around the world, this biblical theology of the Eucharist. And it's, you know, it leaves you feeling like, are we really allowed to have this much fun on this side of heaven? Uh, and of course, it is allowed because this is the main street, the passageway into the glory of heaven. And so, you know, I, I'm always worried when I get this amped up, that people are going to say, wow, you know, this convert is still as zealous, if not more than he was 35 years ago. The religious rhetoric has reached a new fever pitch, you know, and it's like, press pause, please, and allow me to say the reality is infinitely greater than the rhetoric. There is no exaggeration. Once we behold the glory of Christ's risen body face to face, You'll look back and erase this podcast because you'll realize <laughs> Scott really did fall flat on his face. This falls short of the reality behind the truth. We don't just put our faith in propositions about real presence, 
words of consecration, transubstantiation, you know, our our faith rests in the realities that are conveyed by the Eucharistic doctrine, which doesn't in any way devalue the doctrine or make us want to just throw it away or relativize it. If anything, it invests the church's teaching in the catechism as expounding the coherence, the integrity of sacred scripture. You know, these this is like gold, silver, diamonds, emeralds, you know, it's so much more. That doctrine is so much more valuable. And yet ultimately the real presence of the risen savior is what all of those doctrines are pointing to. Yeah, I think I mean I'm a huge fan, of course, of the St. Paul Center and the work that you that you guys do there. And I, I think one of the huge things that you're doing that I think is so important is I encountered Catholics who did not know what the Eucharist was, right? Of course, the stats show that. There's lots <laughs> yeah. of those, right? I mean, more and more right. than there is. There Your is name a, is Legion for there are many. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. But, but we, what we have to do, I think, and you know this, you're doing this, is educate those Catholics on what the church actually believes, right? Finding finding the old and the new, finding those connections, understanding what the Eucharist is as this the, the summit of our faith, right? And then sending those people out to, when they encounter evangelicals like I was, they can talk about these things. I mean, I think of, uh, the idea of the sacraments was foreign to me as an evangelical, but to think, Absolutely. when I realized that I can actually consume our Lord in the Eucharist, and that, that actually does something to me, that actually gives me a kind of grace that's, I, I can't measure it in like a, in a, in a, in a beaker or something, but I, I'm getting a tangible amount of grace there when I do that. And when I go every day or every week, it's actually changing me. Even after you say after 35, 35 years, you maybe you feel like you haven't changed a whole lot, but it is doing something. Only right? I'm more excited that, than I was. Yeah, it's yeah. true and more beautiful than I thought back then. That's, <laughs> that's mind blowing though, that you actually, you know, if you believe what the church says about this and has said this since the beginning of the very early church to believe this, it's doing something to you, right? That I would never have understood or had happened to me as an evangelical, right? Yeah, you know, as Catholics, we recognize there's a mystery to growing toward holiness or growing in holiness. You know, when I came into the church and I went to my first confession, I had those note cards and I had about an hour to get through. And then I was given a penance pitifully disproportionate to the crimes that I had admitted to. You know, I, I kind of thought of myself as, you know, a criminal who was being reconciled, pardoned, and even adopted. But I also felt like I was finally able to, to divulge my dirty little secrets. But the older you get in the spiritual life as Catholics, I think the calling is to become more and more childlike. For such belongs the kingdom, as our Lord says. Now, instead of dirty little secrets, I feel like I have dirty diapers, you know, and that through the sacraments, our Lord is showing that, that, that mercy is more than pity, that the sacraments are more than a pity party, that, as Aquinas would say, mercy is God's all-powerful love in action, in actu. And, uh, to see that you need it more now than you did back then, or at least you realize you need it now more than you thought you did back then, is still the single most liberating thing of my life, and so many others too, and why the call to conversion is lifelong, why it's constant, why it also needs to be daily, and if it means picking up a cross each morning and following him as he tell, as he tells us in Luke, then it's never going to be easy. It isn't like, oh, well, downhill from here. Just let the enthusiasm and the warm, fuzzy feelings carry you. No. You know, every day you're going to face that cross. And every week I go to confession. And Kimberly has never once suggested, oh, you go too frequently. You know, what amazing grace we have 
and I trace it back to my covenant theology. They're, they're again, different camps, different tribes to Israel. But I do think that the covenant is more than a Reformed Presbyterian monopoly. I think that Catholics see it as um, a term that is used mostly by outsiders, and yet we do also hear it every single Mass. And at what point? Oh, the words of consecration, when it's no longer bread and wine, it is now his body. Maybe we haven't been giving that as much attention or devoted study or contemplation. You know, and I remember learning that the term covenant, berit in Hebrew, diatheke in Greek, is different than a contract. I won't go into all of the details. I've done that elsewhere. But the eureka moment for me was when Meredith Klein and Gordon Hugenberger pointed out in their in, in the seminars that I was taking as a graduate student that you don't have a covenant if all you have are promises. The only way you can have a covenant ratified or renewed is by an oath. And I'm thinking, oath? I mean, that's legalistic, that's ritualistic, but no. In Genesis 21 and everywhere else, it is swearing a solemn oath, invoking the name of God, going through a ritual. And then Klein just pointed out in parenthesis that in his book, By Oath Consigned on Baptism, that the Latin word for oath is sacramentum. Hmm. I always thought that was an alien term. Well, yeah, it's Latin, so it's not Hebrew or Greek. And then Hugenberger pointed out in my Hebrew class that the Hebrew word to swear an oath is shavat, literally, to seven yourself. And at some point, the Holy Spirit just nudged me and said, do you think it's any coincidence that the new covenant has not two, but just maybe seven sacraments, and that the blessed sacrament is the new covenant, or the only thing Jesus called it. And I mean, this is like covenant theology on steroids. This is where, you know, no man dares to go unless the Lord beckons him. And so I would conclude by this. I would say that it's beyond high time for Catholics to appropriate the notion of covenant, old and new, word and sacrament, oath, but also this sacred mysterion, because sacramentum in the Latin often translated the Greek word for mystery, mysterion. I mean, we have a theological agenda that will take at least the next 50 years, if not the next 500, to basically rediscover covenant theology, but also to reappropriate it and say, you know what, we'd loaned that to you Protestants over 500 years ago, but we want it back. You can still use it, but, you know, look at the trademark, look at the, the deed, the title is in our name, you know, and I, and I think we have a, a whole lot of great potential for reigniting the hearts of Catholics, for advancing the new evangelization. If John Paul is right in describing the new evangelization as re-evangelizing the de-Christianized, this is our command performance. These are our marching orders. And I mean, we've never realized just how good the good news is. We're discovering how awful the bad news is, and it's, it's getting worse faster and deeper and darker than anybody expected. But that's probably because God is, 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 is nudging us or shoving us and saying, look, I want you to find out and show others that the good news is infinitely more good than you thought and infinitely more bright than the bad news is dark. So if sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Romans 5.20 is still true today as much as it was, you know, back in the 50s when Paul, when Paul first wrote that epistle. So um, 
you know, get excited. And if you're not, if your heart isn't burning, you know, last week I saw a cardiologist. If your heart isn't burning, you probably need to see one too. <laughs> and I think I'll, I'll say one last word and then I'll get you to tell us where to find some more resources that you've done. And the, the realization for me was that communion as a symbol was actually so much more than, than that in, in the Catholic Church. And realizing that, right, that got me excited. Realizing that what I was doing all these years as a Protestant, that thing I was doing actually is is meant to be way bigger. I mean, that is exciting. Glory to God. <laughs> right? You know, I, when I was an evangelical, sacraments were like hugs. When I entered more fully into the Presbyterian tradition, I realized, no, they're more like kisses. Now that I'm a Catholic, I realize why it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because I could have said to my bride on our wedding night, what Jesus says to his bride every day through his priest, this is my body which is given up for you. It really is the supernatural mystery that corresponds to the analogy of marital intimacy, life-giving love. That isn't just a rhetorical play on words. I mean, that is a penetration into how much God is passionately in love with us beyond our highest hopes, our wildest dreams. And that is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. <laughs> well, so help us God. <laughs> well said. Dr. Hani, you've mentioned your website, stpaulcenter.com, and your streaming series. Where else can people go? What else would you point them towards if they're looking into these ideas and want to know more and hear more from you? Where should they go? Well, I mean, obviously, I would say come home. Come visit us at the St. Paul Center. We're here in Steubenville. We've been around for 20 years. Our mission is teaching Catholics to read the Bible from the heart of the church, which means a liturgical way of reading, a liturgical Eucharistic hermeneutic, if you will. Uh, biblical literacy for Catholic laypeople, biblical fluency for Catholic clergy and our teachers. We have a number of priest conferences, but most especially the resources that we have for beginners, intermediates, and advanced. I mean, literally hundreds no, actually thousands of resources that are available. And so I would say, you know, come to the website, uh, check out the books, uh, the live streaming of the Bible and the Mass, the series of 10 episodes that is still free until Easter. I, I would also recommend this book that I wrote back in 99 called The Lamb's Supper. Uh, it's in, I think, uh, over a dozen languages, but it's helped ordinary Catholics and non-Catholics and ex-Catholics not more than I expected, but in a certain sense, a lot like I experienced this eureka, sustained conversion. I would also say that the uh, the sequel to that is the fourth cup. And that, that explains how the Eucharist is what transforms the execution into the consummation of the sacrifice. And then consuming the word. What difference does this make when it comes to reading the Bible, when it comes to everyday life and that sort of thing? I also have a book called The First Society that focuses on the sacrament of matrimony and how that could restore the, the social order. My most recent book is what you mentioned at the top of our time, and that is uh, It is Right and Just. Again, not just a line lifted from the liturgy, but the truth, you know, why the future of civilization depends upon true religion. Another book that came out right after COVID called Hope to Die, The, uh, the Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. Uh, I'm really trying to take all of the profound and lofty mysteries that we theologize about for me for over 40 years professionally, but above all, in a contemplative childlike way, uh, because I could always tell which of my professors really grasped the material by how well they could break it down for me 
and for my peers and for even those who are coming behind us. And so that is our holy passion here at the St. Paul Center, to take profound truths and make them understandable, practical, and personal. That's fantastic. And great stuff to listen to, to really get lost in the Finger Lakes on a drive to a conference. <laughs> Dr. Hahn, I want to say God bless you. God bless the work you're doing for the church. Thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. But Keith, a thousand thanks to you and to our viewers and listeners, because I once again had more fun than I expected. You know, it's almost like, are we allowed? Yes, we are allowed to have this much joy. God bless you. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, guys, my interview with Dr. Scott Hahn. What a doozy. What an absolute privilege. Thank you guys for supporting this show, for listening to this show and making this even possible. I never would have dreamed as I began to look into the Catholic Church way back when that this would ever ever have been possible. So thank you and thank you in particular to the supporters of this show at patreon.com slash cordial catholic because you guys make this thing financially possible each and every month. So thank you. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website for show notes, for blog articles, things I've been doing. At CordialCatholic on Twitter, TheCordialCatholic on Facebook, and CordialCatholic on Instagram as well. You can watch this episode at on YouTube at YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic. Of course, it's there. All these interviews now, thanks to patrons, are filmed as well as recorded. Thanks to your support, guys, for making that possible. If you can follow, subscribe to this show wherever you find it, that helps other people to find it as well. Your ratings and reviews, too, are so crucial. If you can go on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Listen Notes, wherever you find this show and leave a rating or review, that helps to push the podcast out to new people and spread the the mission of evangelization, which really is, is the whole point of this thing. So thank you, friends, who are doing that. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is my email. Please do reach out. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why or why you listen. I love hearing from you guys. I write back to all the emails I can as soon as I can. And thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for being here. Please spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Let's keep this thing going. And thank you, guys. Please pray for me. Know I'm praying for you, too. And God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.